Good evening, everyone. It's probably foolish to say it, but we seem to have overcome all the technical problems for the time being. So, um, the only reason for having this really is to show you a few pictures which um, might um, give you a chance to involve your other senses rather than simply having to listen to me. The first thing that you will you may think, and you may think even more by the time we get to the end of the evening, is that this is a slightly ambitious title. <laughs> I think probably more realistic would be some of something will be partially revealed. <laughs> but that's not quite so snappy, is it? So um, you'll have to forgive me going for, um, going, going for the, the whole thing uh, to begin with. So... Here's some initial thoughts. Um, what sort of book is it? Who wrote it and when? Um, what are the principal themes? And, and what might we need to help us understand it better? Because I think for many people, and certainly it was my perception of the book of Revelation before I started preparing this talk, it was that it was impenetrable. There were some good bits, that we, we have good bits, and, um, and, and then there's a lot which is just incomprehensible really. Well I hope that uh, in the course of this evening I'll persuade you that it's not that bad and that actually the book of Revelation is a fitting end to the New Testament uh, as it looks at the present but also looks to the future. So what kind of book is it? Um, well it's a revelation. Uh, John tells us it's a revelation. It's also an apocalypse. And it's an apocalypse because apocalypse is just uh, another word for revelation. But whereas revelation has held on to something of its old meaning, apocalypse has tended to mean something different. So in a way, the term apocalyptic and the way that apocalypse tends to be used now, for example in film titles, has derived from the book and not from the other way around. It's clearly a book of visions only have to read the first bit it opens not unlike Pilgrim's Progress I had a dream and here's what I dreamt it's also a letter it's a letter in its general format and it came, contains within it a number of letters as you'll know the letters to the seven churches which we'll come to fairly early on but it seems to me that above everything else and another way it describes itself is as a prophecy and again, prophecy is a word that we're not necessarily terribly comfortable with nowadays and we don't fully understand what it means. But if we think of the great Old Testament prophets, say Isaiah and Ezekiel, those two are especially important because so much of um, what's written in the Revelation comes uh, in essence from, from those books. Um, this prophecy is um, not exactly what we think it is. And um, so my definition of prophecy is about proclaiming God's word into a specific situation. So it's rooted in what was then, the here and now. It may look forward, but it talks about specific circumstances. So Ezekiel, for example, was talking about the desperately miserable Jews who were in exile in Babylon. And he couldn't have written the book had he not had that as the background. What it isn't, and some of you will no doubt be disappointed because you're probably expecting me to explain how all history follows the pattern set out in the book of Revelation. It's not 
and it's very misleading to pretend that it ever could be a detailed and prescriptive way of describing future events. Generally, it may talk about what happens in the future, especially towards the end of time, but you would go mad, I think, if you tried to fit events of history into a particular, um, into this particular framework. And indeed, you might argue that some people have, in fact, gone mad predicting the millennium, predicting the return of Jesus and all those kind of things. It's not like the rest of the Bible, it's not a handbook, it's not, it's not, doesn't tell you how things will function. So then we go on to, well, who wrote it and when was it written? It was written by John because he tells us it was written by John and most scholars nowadays believe that that was not either John the Evangelist or John the Apostle. <laughs> and that it was written by an elder in the church called John. Uh, and they, they argue about whether it was written in about 90 AD or about 70 AD. That may become important if you're really interested in which Roman emperors are being identified in the book, but if you're not, again, that doesn't matter, whether it's the one or the other. It was very early on. It was before the, church, the churches were established, but there was nothing like an overall church, an overall organisation. So, I want to move on now to what I think is the kind of overarching structure. We'll get into the more detailed structure in a moment, and we'll whiz through that. Uh, and I've got some handouts so you can take away so that you're not <coughs> shortchanged, but also so that you're not here all evening. The idea of this book is that you move from the beginning to the end. It's a remarkable piece of literature. It contains all kinds of, if I said clever tricks, that implies something superficial. But events abound in with one another. It's a highly sophisticated piece of writing and there is nothing there that's arbitrary. But it starts with heaven and earth as two distinct places. God is in heaven, John is on the earth. And as you read through, the first message comes from heaven, from God, from the throne room, through the angel, to John on earth. And then we spend time on earth, then we go back to heaven again with the throne room vision, and, and then we're back to earth again. Eventually, the book ends with heaven coming down to earth. It's not about earth going up to heaven, which is what we perhaps normally think about, but God bringing heaven down to earth when the conditions on earth are right. We start too with small Christian churches embattled, suffering, enduring, faithful in varying degrees, and we end with multitudes of the faithful praising God and Jesus. And the other thing, and this is if, if, if you don't get this from the start, most of Revelation will, will be completely indecipherable. We start with Rome, the Roman Empire's overwhelming military and economic might, muscle, oppression. And at the end, we've moved on. Rome has been eliminated. And it's then possible for the Roman Empire and all subsequent empires to be replaced by the new Jerusalem. So the question is, what has to be done to get from the starting point to the ending point? What needs to be done to make Earth 
a fit place for God to want his heaven to come down to. And you can see immediately from that way of putting it that all these ideas of thousands of years and, and all these specific prescriptions fall away and we're looking at symbols, we're looking at ideas. Here's what the book is like in detail and um, we start with an introduction. I'm going to give you a handout of, the, of chapter one and also of the conclusion. These two uh, kind of bookends to what goes on. We have letters to the seven churches, then we have the throne room vision. I've referred to both of those already. And then we move on to the symbolism of the scroll and the seven seals and in that there's a little interlude. Uh, we have seven trumpets and two interludes in that, seven visions, seven bowls, the destruction of Babylon, seven more visions, the new Jerusalem and there we are, we're at the end already. You may have noticed that the number seven figures quite significantly in that, literally, and uh, I'll talk a little bit about numbers later on. So there's the, there's the detailed structure and um, we'll, we'll um, see what, that, uh, what we do with that in a minute. The other thing that is important or seems to me to be important in understanding his uh, revelation is something that I've already referred to. I don't think you can make as much sense of revelation as you need to without being quite grounded in the Old Testament. I know people, Christians don't like to hear this. Um, because it makes life much more difficult, especially as our knowledge of the Old Testament has got poorer and poorer. But John, I think in Revelation, as the other um, writers in the New Testament do, takes for granted that the people that he's writing to will grasp some of the illusions uh, and some of the direct references that he makes. It's also quite important to have at least a broad understanding of what the Roman Empire was like. Things such as, well, everybody would find it easy to envisage the conquering armies of Rome. <coughs> What's perhaps not so well known is that as well as conquering countries, Rome had strategic alliances with others where it got the same result without putting its armies in there by having uh, client kings and tributes being paid to Rome and therefore it was exercising economic as well as military oppression in a vast territory centering around the Mediterranean. The other thing that's important and we find this quite difficult in general terms but the other thing that's really important for us to understand um, Revelation is to be open to non-literal things. In other words, we really do need all our senses. Um, some of it is kind of relatively um, obscure, and I hope to point out one or two things which you may not have realised. But other aspects of Revelation are comprehensible as long as we don't want to see everything absolutely literally. So when we get to hear about dragons and beasts, and you'll see that uh, artists have, um, have done some wonderful uh, art demonstrating what they think the dragon and the beast look like. But, but when we get to these things, they're just pictures to help us understand. In neither case, neither the case of the dragon nor the, dra the case of the beasts, are these meant to be anything other than horrible images. And in all cases, they're images of the Roman Empire. 
So we have to understand that and not try and uh, work out you know, what the dragon's tail is that brings the stars down from heaven. It's not like that. It's just a dragon misbehaving as dragons do. <laughs> and then finally, in, in much the same category, if we don't understand what some of the numbers symbolize, again, we might get hung up on their importance as numbers. But every one of the numbers that we come across means something other than simply being a quantity. It's all figurative. And so let's start with seven. I mentioned seven because seven kind of permeates the whole of the book of Revelation. I've given you one way of structuring the book. Others have said, well, the whole book is structured, that it's in seven sections. Um, that may or may not be, but um, it doesn't matter. Seven is clearly important. And so uh, the first thing that we hear about uh, in chapter 3 is about, the first bit of the vision is about lampstands, seven lampstands. And this is the first thing that perhaps reminds us about uh, the Old Testament. Uh, in the Jewish temple, there, were, there was a seven-branch candle, which was really important in the liturgy of the temple. And you'll have seen pictures of, of Jewish, uh, I think they're called menorahs, seven branch candlestick and um, the way in which these uh, cast light on things. We're familiar aren't we with Christ as the light of the world and light and darkness again is another theme that runs throughout Revelation. So we hear, um, we hear about the first section of um, John's vision and after, after the introduction um, I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to the floor and with a golden sash round his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So don't worry, don't, the thing is, is, what does the sash mean? That's not the question to ask. The question is, well, what's John wanting to tell us? What was, the, what was this vision all about? And it's about God. It's about God being amongst these lampstands, about God being the one who, who behind and beyond them is generating the light that comes into the world. We hear later on very clearly, as we hear in Hebrews, that the, that the sword is the word of God. So that's clearly important. But, but this idea of um, seven lampstands and the seven stars, which we hear in just a moment, we hear are the stars of the seven churches that John is to write to. Uh, they represent the seven churches and particularly they represent what he describes as the angel of the churches. Now again, you could get terribly het up if you were to worry about precisely what the angel means because that's not explained. But when John comes to write his letters to the seven churches, he's told to write to the angel of the church in each case. And so scholars have speculated that maybe what this means is that the church is obviously made up of individual people like our church, but over and above that, it has an identity of its own, which perhaps the angel represents. 
Or if you wanted to think of it as a guardian angel, an angel which looks after the interests of that church, all of that would be fine. Don't try to be too definite, but to get a general sense of what's going on. If you've ever read the seven letters to the seven churches, you will know that they're quite stylized in format. Uh, again, I'm going to give you a handout of those, and, um, so that you can take them away and, and read them. But, um, first of all, it starts out with a, with a particular description of Jesus. For example, the first and the last, who died and came to life again. That's to the church at Smyrna. Um, to the church at Thyatira, eyes like blazing fire, feet like burnished bronze. Philadelphia, he who holds the key of David. Jesus in Revelation is exalted, almost beyond our imagination. He is put on a level with God, as indeed we might expect from a fully formed Trinitarian understanding, but which is perhaps different from the way in which um, the rest of the New Testament talks about Jesus. And then each letter goes on to commend the churches for the good things that they've done, particularly for... Um, coping with affliction and poverty, uh, being true to Jesus' name for their love, faith and service. And then they're encouraged, some of them, in a particular way. So Philadelphia, the message is, I am coming soon. And to Laodicea, I stand at the door and knock. But then, then they're criticised for the things that they've got wrong. And five of the seven are criticised, the other two seem to have been better and don't need criticism but forsaking your first love falling away from the message you heard eating food sacrificed to idols sexual immorality tolerating a false prophet appearing to be alive but actually being dead and in the case the well-known case of Laodicea being neither cold nor hot and reliant on wealth rather than reliant on the word of God. So they're required to take action and one of the actions that occurs again and again in these letters and throughout the rest of the book is repentance, turn, turning back to God. So signs of encouragement are always matched with uh, the response to that being repentance. And much of the terrible things that happen later in Revelation by implication happened to those who have refused God's offer of forgiveness and have refused to repent. Then, for those who don't repent, there is the sanction in each of these letters. So, for example, um, using using this sword, using the word, the sword of the word against them, uh, removal of the lampstand, sort of taking God away from them. Um, and Philea to Seer again, spitting you out of my mouth. It's quite vivid language, isn't it? John doesn't pull his punches, or the, or the vision that he was given doesn't pull its punches. And finally, then there is always, for every church, there is the promise to the one who is faithful, to the one who does overcome. So the right to eat from the tree of life in paradise, the crown of life for all eternity, um, hidden manner, having your name put on a stone, authority over the nations, dressed in white, name in the book of life, a pillar in God's temple or a seat on the throne. All of these are what are held out in prospect to those who are faithful. 
And the importance of those letters is that it seems to start the book off firmly rooted in the reality of Christian life, that, that no church and probably no individual is perfect. Um, and these are the kind of things which we might see in our own church and yet which have been around since the beginning. And that we all, all our churches, have the opportunity to uh, deal with them. Uh, relying particularly on God's word. So this is a picture of the lampstands with God in the middle of them, shedding light, uh, and a kind of uh, multi-layered image. The seven churches, I thought I'd just show you a map to explain where they are. Um, they're all in what is now Turkey, which is over here, um, then part of the Roman Empire, um, and you can see Athens and Corinth on the other side of the um, Aegean Sea. And here's uh, a, a map just of the churches themselves. There's the island of Patmos where, where um, John was in exile. And he wrote to these, and interestingly, he wrote to them in order. He was a very orderly writer, and he wrote Ephesus, Smyrna, Pogum, so kind of um, going round these churches in a clockwise manner. Very structured, very orderly, whatever the messages he had to bring. It, it was not, not arbitrary. The selection of these churches doesn't mean these are the only seven churches there are, because we know that there were loads more. But again, seven, which represents fullness, both here and elsewhere uh, in the Bible and in Judaism particularly. It represents fullness. So although there are specific messages for the specific churches, the overall message of the book of Revelation is to the whole church of which they are representative members. So we move on from these very rooted on the earth letters to the throne room vision, one of the best known um, parts of Revelation. Partly best known because it's so glorious and because in using it in worship and liturgy um, it enables Christians to offer praise but it doesn't challenge them in quite the same way that other aspects of this book do. So some of this I'll have to leave for you to take home with you and read at home. You might want to read the whole book or of course you might not. <laughs> this might be so off-putting. So this is how the <coughs> throne room vision starts. John writes, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold in their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. This is very poetic and imaginative language, isn't it? Um, it's difficult actually to fit any of that into, um, into a picture, though one or two people have tried. This is, uh, this is a book that was... Um, put together 900 years ago and um, you can see some of what I've said most importantly I think here is John at the bottom 
lying, receiving the vision. And you can't see it very well on here, but there's a little line which goes up here to this rather odd-looking goose-like bird. That's the dove representing the Holy Spirit. That passage started, if you remember, and in the Spirit. The significance of the Holy Spirit is, is not absent in Revelation. And here we've got the 24 elders, here we've got the uh, lampstands, um, we haven't got four living beasts, probably ran out of room, but there's, there's thunder and lightning from the throne, there's, there's um, this glassy sea perhaps. Um, and here's another version, this is William Blake, and um, the 24 elders are out on squashed in, um, and there are four living beasts which we hear about a bit later on uh, and which play some significance in uh, the rest of the story but from this focus on God in his glory the image soon passes to that of the lamb who was slain to Jesus and what's interesting is that he is identified as the only one who is capable of opening the seals of a scroll which one of the elders is holding. Only Jesus is good enough to open the scroll. And he is worshipped in an identical way to the way in which God is worshipped. They are, they are the two uh, beings of power in the heavenly realm. So we come to the scroll and immediately at this point the vision rather darkens. We're beginning to get to what needs to be done to the earth to make it a holy enough place for God to bring heaven down to. And so the scroll contains warnings and judgment. It's calling God's people to faithfulness and the world of evil to account or preferably to repentance. This scroll ref reflects two scrolls of Ezekiel's and um, in the handout that I'm going to give you you'll be able to look back to them and, and see ways in which they were, they were <coughs> similar and or different. Uh, Ezekiel uh, prophesying into the world of Babylon, the great power of the time and throughout Revelation, Rome never described by its own name but always described as Babylon we start with the first four seals being opened and in each, as each seal is opened we get what might be a pleasant picture of a horse first seal is a white horse but it's clear that these horses, this is fairly well known um, engraving by Dura uh, of the four horsemen and they're anything but pleasant they are bringing scourges, they're bringing um, they're bringing war oppression, famine and death <coughs> and immediately I think most of us will think well that doesn't seem fair there doesn't seem to have been much in the way of warning, doesn't seem to be much in the way of uh, attempting to help people understand what's going to happen. Well, that's as may be. But these, uh, what's interesting is again the way in which Revelation is structured. 
the damage that these poor horsemen do with their scourges and with all that they bring is that the effects are limited. Uh, you may think this is a very strange definition of limited, but, but in each case, each of these things only kills 25% of the population. Again, don't get too bound up with the imagery and the apparent ferocity of it. What's important to understand is that God is doing his best. He is sending these warnings so that the warnings that come later won't need to have their same effect. And there is in this section, as there is throughout, the distinction between those who have been faithful to Jesus, especially the martyrs, and those who are evil and for whom the time has nearly come. Judgment is being delayed, and judgment is delayed while 144,000, I'll explain that later on, what that means, but a large number of, of the saints um, are sealed, are given God's mark on their foreheads. They're identified as those who are faithful. And they join the worshipping multitude in heaven. Interestingly, the seventh seal is one which leads to something which is quite different. It leads to silence in heaven. Half an hour of silence. To which God responds with more thunder and lightning. And we get the next series of visions which are the seven trumpets. Again, God's power is displayed by um, the trumpets affecting earth, sea, fresh water and the sky. Power over absolutely everything. And again, the effects are limited, but they're limited not to a quarter, as the effects of the seals were, but to a third. So the imagery is one of increasing judgment. This is the fourth trumpet. This is the trumpet that affects the sky. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Now you understand why it's very difficult to make any rational or logical sense out of that because it doesn't work does it how does the sun a third of the sun become dark it makes no literal sense but in our imaginations perhaps it makes a whole lot of sense and, and here we have um, this is the oldest I think of the illustrations this is a thousand years old nearer to the time that John was writing than to us uh, and so here we can see the sun and the moon, I think, a third of them have gone dark. We move on, we get some more rather horrible things. Here are the fifth and the sixth trumpets. The fifth and the sixth trumpets are going to exercise your um, powers of imagination even more. But they're quite interesting in themselves. So the fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. And out of the smoke locusts came down upon the earth, 
and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. Here they are, the most unlikely looking locusts that you've ever seen. But they looked like horses prepared for battle on their heads. They wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions. So not very nice, I think, is the general impression that we're given about, um, about these locusts. And uh, then the sixth trumpet is... Um, it doesn't have that degree of imagery, but we get um, then the sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. So lucky angels, really, <laughs> being penned up since the beginning of time, just so that uh, when the time came they could slaughter a third of humanity. You see why I said that it's difficult to take it literally and make any sense out of it. But the increasing sense of um, there being there being um, a time for account and this time for account is getting closer and closer and God wanting to make it clear that this is about to happen so that these are still signs of warning so after the sixth trumpet we again get a, a, a pause we have an interlude and the interlude is um, Another one which refers back to the Old Testament. The interlude is where John eats the scroll. He's told that it'll taste like honey in your mouth, but be bitter in your stomach. And so the sweetness is because it's God's word, but the bitterness is because of what it says is going to happen. So now this, this illustration is from Luther's Bible. Uh, from 1534, uh, just in the early throes of the Reformation. And um, this, the person, the angel giving the scroll, which looks like a book to me, um, probably because it was a logical thing to translate scroll as book. Books were what people had nowadays. Printing had been invented, not scrolls, those, that old technology. So here is John eating the book. This is a, a pretty literal description of the way in which the angel is described with one foot on earth and one foot in heaven. You may remember, if you're up on your Old Testament, that Ezekiel was given a scroll to eat. And Ezekiel's scroll was like honey in his mouth. Let me just read the description of this angel so that you'll see how closely this mirrors that. So this is from chapter 10. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow about his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and the left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, 
the voices of the seven thunders spoke. So there we are, more imagery, more sevens, everything's in sevens. And um, we don't get to hear about the seven thunders because John was just about to write down what they said and he was told not to. And so he didn't. So we don't know what they were all about. But thunder is always a sign of God, so it was something from God. It's also um, the case that uh, we get another um, interlude here, which is um, a picture of two lampstands, two olive trees feeding oil into the lampstands. And again, they look back to um, the vision of uh, Zechariah. And there, the lampstands, and the olive trees particularly, are, represent the church. Some of the background to this is probably the fact that whether um, John was writing in about 70 or about 90, one of the events that would have been uppermost in his own mind and in the mind of uh, all those who knew any Jewish background at all was the destruction of the temple. Um, and these, the, la the original two lampstands stood in the temple and again were important as the ritual there. We get, uh, we get to hear about um, a period of 42 months. I'm going to explain that to you later on. Things happen for 42 months. And then the seventh, seventh trumpet sounds and we're back to the throne room uh, to praise and to God's announcement that the time for reward and punishment, all in accordance with what God has promised, has come. And then we get seven short visions. So far, you may think, oh, well, this is all well and good. We're getting through this at quite a lick. Um, but we haven't got on to any of what I thought were the juicy bits. Uh, and it may be that in this section, the section of the seven visions, everything you could possibly want is revealed uh, in terms of the imagery. First of all, in chapter 12, verse 1, we read this. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads, and ten horns, and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman, who was about to give birth, so that he might devour her child the moment he was, it was born. Sorry. So that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule over all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,200 and 60 days. So I think it's clear that we're meant to read into that um, Jesus. We might be meant to read into it uh, the uh, massacre of the innocents, Herod's attempt to deal with Jesus before he grew up. Um, and although this dragon seems to be have all sorts of things that uh, we may not fully understand, um, about him, like the seven horns and the crowns and all that, so very powerful. Um, 
God is greater than all that. And this is, um, this is just a picture of that scene. And um, so here is the pregnant woman. And the baby is born, snatched up to heaven, given to God. Um, and a little bit of the story is that um, as the woman is escaping uh, to a place of safety, the dragon spews out huge amounts of water trying to carry her away. But the earth opens up and it's all swallowed up. So there's the, there's the sun and the moon that the woman was standing with. Here are the stars that the dragon swept out of heaven. Uh, and on the right hand side, we're looking forward to the scenes of judgment, which I know you can't wait for. We get then, we've had a dragon, we've got a dragon, the dragon's obviously bad. We get a beast from the sea. The beast from the sea seems to be derived from Daniel, the book of Daniel. And the beast is quite uncontrollable. We hear about um, possibly the, the beast coming back to life. Perhaps the beast is parodying the resurrection of Jesus. Or maybe nodding to um, a, a Roman belief that the Emperor Nero, awful though he was, would come back one day. There seems to have been a legend around the Emperor Nero that, uh, that, that he would return. Whatever happens, this, this, this beast is, um, is, is blasphemes, has irresistible power, and, and the faithful are told that all they can do when confronted with this is to endure patiently. There's no simple answer to it. We get another beast, as if one beast like that weren't enough. We then get a beast from the earth. And this is the beast that perhaps you've been waiting for, because this is the beast who places his mark on the forehead of his people. And the mark of the beast, you'll remember, is 666. You all know that. So I'm not going to say any more about that, since you all know it. And we'll come back to the 666. But, but just in the way that God seals his faithful, the beast seals those who are faithful to him and against God with this mark. Then we get a vision to remind us that in spite of the dragon and the beast from the sea and the beast from the land, everything is under God's reign. And so we're taken back to a vision of the 144,000 and the elders praising <coughs> God and praising Jesus as the Lamb. Then we get three angels announcing the hour of God's judgment, the collapse of the power of Babylon, that is Rome, uh, and the implications for those who bear the mark of the beast. And those implications, as you can imagine, are not great. Then the angels are sent to harvest the grain and the wine. The grain taken into God's kingdom, the wine are pressed underfoot in the wine press. And then the last of the visions is the song of those who escaped the beast. And this is really closely um, based on the Exodus story, particularly passing through the Red Sea. And you'll remember the great song of triumph when the Egyptians are, are all washed away by the sea as they chase after the Israelites. So again, it helps to know a bit from the Old Testament in, in reading this book. Uh, and 
then we get an introduction to the next series, which is Seven Bowls. Seven Bowls, actually the bowls contain plagues. You'd have thought we'd have had most things by now, but we haven't had enough plagues. <laughs> and you remember, the plagues featured significantly in the story of the Israelites in Egypt. And here they do too. They were warnings then, and again, they're getting towards the last warnings that are offered. The plagues um, prepare for the destruction of Babylon. They render it impotent. And by setting the scene at a place called Armageddon, which you may have heard of, where the final battle is going to take place. We have one more picture. And this is a picture of the whore of Babylon. Babylon being shown as a prostitute, one who, to whom the kings of the earth kneel down. You remember what I said earlier about client kings. Um, this is, again, from Luther's Bible. It's a little bit naughty because the whore of Babylon is wearing on her head a papal mitre, <laughs> which actually isn't in the book of Revelation except by implication. So that's a bit naughty, but there's a lovely picture of the, of, of, of the beast, and, and we're told, and this is the most specific reference to Rome, that, that the whore of Babylon is sitting on seven hills. In this case, seven is not a good number. The seven hills have always been taken to be symbolic of the city of Rome, because that's what it was built on. Um, and so... Uh, the idea that these kings have, have bowed down, the idea too that it's not just military power that is what Rome is. Rome is sucking the wealth of all the nations under its influence uh, into its empire and making use of that. And um, so this is, is the final image and um, <coughs> we move on then to um, the, 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 the fall of Babylon itself. Uh, interestingly, um, people haven't depicted this as much. They've, they've, they've found it much easier to depict um, uh, things like the dragon and um, the beast and the angels blowing trumpets. The destruction of Babylon, which is foreshadowed here, doesn't seem to be, so I haven't got a picture to show you, but it's not difficult to imagine the destruction of a great power, a great city. Um, and um, everything disappears and there is lamenting. There's lamenting particularly for the loss of its wealth. Which is interesting because we don't think of economic superpowers. But that's what Rome was in that time. And that was one of the things that um, clearly um, in this vision of John's is being held against her, not simply the oppression of people, but the way in which then the wealth was absorbed. So Babylon is destroyed and the heavenly response is little short of ecstatic. You'd have thought with all the praising that we'd had so far that there wouldn't be much left, but what we hear at the beginning of chapter 19 is this. 
After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up for ever and ever. So maybe artists felt there was enough imagery there that they didn't need actually to write it down on paper. We're not quite finished with visions. We've got seven more brief visions. But now, for the first time, heaven stands open. The earth has been cleansed and Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, rides out at the head of his army. Even the rest of creation is called to witness this and so the birds are called to witness the defeat of the beast. The dragon is incapacitated for a thousand years um, and um, my way of thinking about a thousand years isn't to think of it as a thousand actual years though many people have spent many uh, years trying to sort this out but to think of it in the sense that it's used in Psalm 90 verse 4 it says um, a thousand years are but as one day in God's sight and then um, we reach the point where the martyrs are brought up. They're brought up to heaven and they reign with Christ for the millennium. Then we get this strange situation of Satan, the beast, being released after the thousand years. Apparently just so that he can be ex extinguished permanently. Because that's what happens. Then comes the day of judgment. Um, and we get the idea of the book of life. We've heard it before, the names of the faithful are written in the book of life. And if your name isn't in that book, then you're going to be in trouble at the last judgment. And then we have a picture of the new Jerusalem. Before that, we've already seen that, that, that God is talking via John in terms that indicate a degree of intimacy that is really beyond our imagining I think the idea that you'll be familiar with of God wiping away the tears of those who follow Jesus it's a very intimate um, image of him especially after all this stuff about the throne and what's going on in heaven and, and, and the praise and everything so we reach the New Jerusalem, and I've just listed here, and they're in the handout, the ways in which in Revelation, New Jerusalem is compared with Babylon, with Rome. Uh, and you can just have a look at those things. And it's in complete distinction. It's exactly the opposite in most respects. So the New Jerusalem um, is just like heaven. It's a city uh, which reflects God's glory. It's tailor-made for his people. There are 12 gates, 12 foundations. It's 12,000 stadia, that is um, a measurement of length, long and high and wide. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's, the walls are 144 cubits thick, which is quite thick. Um, 
And most importantly, the river of the water of life flows from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And this, again, is, is, a, is an image derived, in part at least, from Ezekiel's image. And not only does it flow from the city, but it nourishes the tree of life. So suddenly we're back at the end of the Bible. We're back right to the beginning of the Bible. We're back in the Garden of Eden and the tree of life. And whereas Adam and Eve and generations after weren't allowed access to the tree of life, now everyone has access to the tree of life in the city of God. It has 12 crops and its leaves, you'll remember, are for the healing of the nations. So we managed to get through Revelation in a little less than an hour and I just want to say a word about the numbers um, because you'll feel shortchanged if I don't. We've already talked about seven. The number seven appears about over 60 times in the book of Revelation, so it's clearly important. As I said, it represents completeness or fullness. Um, uh, so the seven churches standing for the whole church. Four, the four living beasts, uh, four used in various other places, also represents a complete set, and especially in relation to the earth. So we've already, we've already heard... Um, how the earth comprised of, or, or the, the, um, the whole of creation comprising the earth and the sea and the fresh water and the sky. So four used in that sense, again of, of um, completion. Twelve is yet another way of describing completion. There were twelve tribes of Israel, so twelve is always an important, an important figure. And so the 12 tribes, which is probably where the 12 apostles came from, also became a really important number for, for the, the church itself. 144, as those of you who are alert got your mental written, is 12 times 12. It probably means what 12 does, but more so. 12 squared. And um, so um, there is not... A, the, these, these, again, are general ideas. They're not they're not as specific as perhaps we'd like them. Then we get 12,000, which is obviously 12 times 1,000. We get 144,000, which is 12 times 12 times 1,000. 1,000, I think, simply represents a large number. So we've got 12, and we've got 12, and we've got 1,000. So that's a very large number of faithful, all encapsulated within 144,000. 24, the 24 elders... Nobody's come up with an entirely plausible explanation for that, but it may simply be that that's just 12 doubled up. Could hardly be better than that. Um, and then we get this strange period of three and a half years, or 42 months, or 1260 days. Um, it's, it's derived from uh, a phrase in Daniel. A time, and times, and half a time. And three and a half years is not coincidentally half of seven years. So it's a period which is not complete, which is well short of completion, but for which completion might be out there somewhere. And then, six, six, six. Well, you can have fantastic fun with this. Um, some people have suggested, and it seems plausible enough, though it's not something that I would ever have alighted on, is that um, there was a technique of using the Jewish language and giving each letter of the Jewish alphabet a numerical value. 
If you take the words Nero Caesar, that is the Emperor Nero, and translate them into Hebrew, and then give the resulting Hebrew letters the numerical value that they had in this technique, you get 666. And if that doesn't convince you, I don't know what will. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there are all sorts of, you can look in the books and they, there's another thing about 666 though, and this, this is for maths fiends really. If you take the, the integers, the numbers from 1 to 36 and add them together, they come to 666. So that's interesting, it's a triangular number. number. And from earliest days, math, maths you know was, was a very old established um, activity. And um, so people would have known this. I don't think when I mentioned the number 666, it struck in anybody's mind, oh that's a triangular number, oh I know that, that's important. But perhaps it was in those days. Uh, and interestingly, 666 is the first double triangular number because the numbers 1 to 8 add up to 36 and the numbers from 1 to 36 add up to 6 and there you are, you, you, you could be at this all evening couldn't you? <laughs> Perhaps more prosaically, you'd like me to end on a, on a lower brow note 6 is 1 less than 7, so it falls short of 7, it isn't the perfect number it doesn't represent completion so 6, 6, 6 falls short of 7, 7, 7 three times. It's a bad number and the beast is bad. That I think is all revealed. <laughs>